Lucky number two. And welcome, now faithful listeners. I'm Amy. I'm Lacey. And we are your guides in The Library Game, an eclectically indecisive book club. As a quick reminder, The Library Game is a methodical way of randomly narrowing down that oh-so-terrible question of what do I read next? What we do is we take the rows, sections, shelves, and number of books into account, and you randomly select one of each until you have narrowed yourself down to the book that you will read. And we call these the RSSB coordinates, row, section, shelf, and book. And in this episode, we will be discussing The Obsidian Tower by Melissa Caruso. This book we came to via the RSSB coordinates of 13, 3, 4, 6. And those were your picks. So, okay, let's jump right into this. We are going to do that thing you're never supposed to do. We're going to judge this book by the cover. So with the Obsidian Tower, we have a mostly white, but with kind of graying, smoky background. Obsidian and Tower are written in kind of goldish letters above and below the main picture here with the inside the O, which is cute, I guess. And then the main picture here, we have what looks like a chunk of ground that has been like pulled up out of the ground. It's kind of free floating in the air. There's little bits around it. It's all mostly black with this kind of blue green just hint to a bunch of crystal into the ground. And then at the top of it, you have this castle that is very pointy, very straight lines, and has several towers, and they are all black. And honestly, Lacey, wouldn't you say that that looks kind of like an anatomical heart shape of the whole picture there? Yeah, I hadn't thought that at first, but yeah. It just occurred to me. There's also, I think, some, maybe like some water or something in there that at first glance, I almost thought looked like like a Uh, skull. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe it's just the shiny crystal. Well, there's the crystal, and then around the base of the castle, there is the, you know, like how obsidian almost has this flow look to it, Mm because it is like, what, it's from lava, right? Yeah. So there is a bit that almost looks kind of oil slicky right around the base of the castle. So on top of this, I'm going to read just the little review from the New York Times bestselling author, Emily A. Duncan, which just says, a must read for all fantasy fans. So we're not going to really look at the back, because the back does have the synopsis, But I think the spine tells us that this is a book in a series. Oh, it is. This is book one of Rooks and Ruin, which is the name of the series. So that's going to be fun. We're going to, after we review this book, we're going to make wild predictions about where the series goes after this, because our next pick is not going to probably be the next book in this series. That's not how this game works. So one thing I think is interesting, though, is that this book actually came from the sci-fi section. So that is really going to color more of my judge a book than if we only had the book, because it very clearly says fantasy on the cover. It's got castles. Well, the fantasy is the commentary from another author. But yeah. Right. But it, without coming from that section, I would have had certain opinions about I think, what I thought was going to happen. And having that sci-fi sticker is very, it adds a question mark to the end of that. Yeah. I am getting that vibe of this collision of sci-fi and fantasy because this like free floating rock 
crystal in the air, but also has a castle on it, I think kind of gives that vibe too. I am so excited about the idea of some kind of heart thing being in this, because if I call that now and it becomes like this real cool thing, super excited. I have to say, this is probably between the sci-fi and or fantasy, this is way more into our wheelhouse of preferred Yes, book. although I have never heard of Melissa Caruso, nor have I heard of Emily A. Duncan. Yeah, you and I are not known for our knowledge of authors, though. That's so fair. Aside from some very big names and preferred things from our, what do we call ourselves? Very unread, avid readers. So- us not knowing the name of an author isn't exactly surprising to me. So what do you think the book is actually about? <sighs> I am going to play into that idea of a mashup of sci-fi and fantasy, and I'm going to say a collision of two worlds. So a more scientifically advanced world with a more fantasy style world, some kind of portal between dimensions okay maybe? so that's what i was gonna ask is it yeah. like a aliens planetary visitors mm. or is it like a multiverse i would think maybe more like multiverse and please give me a star-crossed lovers you know the boy from the advanced age and the girl from the castle you know all that shit give that to me like let me eat it up <laughs> sorry <laughs> Okay. So I feel like there's really not much to go off of. I'm just going to lean all the way into the sci-fi piece. And I'm going to say that this is space traveling. Maybe this is an asteroid. Maybe that's what this rock is. Okay. Almost like uh, Star Wars is very space travel sci-fi, but also very fairy tale in the past. Yeah, no, Star Wars is 100% a fantasy story set in space. It's a space opera, if you yeah. will. I'm guessing it's going to be more like that, like a stereotypical fantasy story, but the twist is that it's all occurring in space, maybe on an asteroid, something like that. Kind of plays into some of the old school sci-fi film kind of stuff that was very fantasy in space yeah. kind of thing. So going into, I don't know, what do I think this story is about? Maybe it's like a the princess trapped in the tower situation, but the princess is in a tower on an asteroid. <laughs> that's, all right. That's my guess. Love it. So are we ready to read the Yeah, read me that synopsis. Before I even read it, there's only like two short paragraphs, yeah, so this, we may not get very much from this. This book does not want to give a lot away, which I'm kind of excited about. There's a, like different colors in big, bold font on the top, and then it sort of goes into the actual synopsis, if that makes sense. So I'm going to read that first, and then the synopsis. All right. It says, guard the tower, ward the stone, find your answers writ in bone. Keep your trust through wits or war. Nothing must unseal the door, and door is capitalized. Ooh. I'm liking it. Okay. Deep within Glomengard Castle lies a black tower. Sealed by ancient magic, it guards a dangerous secret that has been contained for thousands of years. As warden, Reichsander knows the warning passed down through generations. Nothing must unseal the door. But one impetuous decision will leave her with blood on her hands. Ooh. An unleashed threat that could doom the world to fall to darkness. So until you said her hands, I was sure that that character that you just read was a dude. I also was thinking. That. I'm very excited for female protag. Hell yeah. Would you like to read some of the other author? Yeah, sure. Reviews? Throw that back over here at me. 
All right. Some of the uh, commentary from other authors. A classic breathtaking adventure that will thrill and delight any fantasy fan. That's from Tasha Suri, author of Empire of Sand. Never read it. <laughs> I think that we're going to be saying never read it to all of these. The Obsidian Tower caught me on page one. That's Carol Berg, author of Dust and Light. Never read it. Sparkling, full of political intrigue and magical chaos. That's Rowena Miller, author of Torn. Never read it. Heard of it. Nope. Brimming with delights, gripping suspense, bombastic magic, political scheming, fascinating creatures, and ill-advised romance. There you go. <laughs> I just did a little fist bump for that one. John Scovron, author of The Ranger of Marzana. Never read it, but that name sounds familiar. Right? Then we've got Surprising and Delightful by Tara Sim, author of Scavenge the Stars. Nope. And Block Out Time to Binge This Can't Stop Story Filled with Danger and Unexpected Disaster, a must-read C.L. Polk, World Fantasy Award-winning author. I've heard of Polk. Don't ask me to say what they've written, but I've heard of Polk. So, yeah, that's... Uh, I'm not getting the sci-fi, so... No, I'm wondering if our library just misappropriated this one. Or just put all the fantasy in with sci-fi. Oh, that's true. Do they even have a fantasy section? No, it's just general fiction, and then sci-fi is its own section. So that may be what it is. Yeah. That's maybe a little disappointing, because I was really excited about the, <laughs> the mashup there. Yeah. But magic, intrigue. Ill-advised romance. <laughs> I feel like you're dooming the next choice to be like a smutty romance novel. Please. <laughs> Honestly, like I haven't read enough of that and I feel like I'm missing out on a lot of fun because everyone I know that reads smutty romance, which I don't know that many people that do, but they love it so much for how trashy and terrible it is. It's like watching like those Mystery Science Theater 3000 flicks, like appreciating something for exactly what it is and nothing else. I'm not looking forward to that. <laughs> Okay, I'm well, not looking forward to having to discuss that. <laughs> oh, it's going to be great. I cannot wait. Yeah, so we are going to start reading this. Are you ready to speed read? Yep. Let's go. Do it. Did it. We done did it. And we were wrong about mostly everything. Yeah, I mean, we already knew we were going to be wrong about the sci-fi aspect. This was 100% fantasy. Yeah. But there was also no heart yeah. in the tower. Man, you know, I thought I was real cool and clever with that. But I don't maybe I mean, it's a series. This yeah. is the first book. So maybe there is a heart. We just haven't got there yet. Maybe she's the heart. Maybe the heart is the friends that we made along the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Well, let's just go ahead and get into it. We are going to try to do a faster synopsis of just the general points of the story. Yeah, every book we've done up until now has been not quite so story focused, but as most fantasy novels go, there's a whole lot of plot. And I think this would be a three hour long podcast if we tried to cover every point. So we're just going to hit the highlights and then we're going to discuss the most interesting parts. Yeah. So in general, this is set in a fantasy world where magic exists. Mm -hmm. Our protagonist is Rixander, who's a 21-year-old warden of Glomengard Castle. Yes. Which is the seat of the Lady of Owls, who is her grandmother, and a witch lord. She's a badass. Yeah. 
and she rules over more grain. So that's sort of the landscape of where we begin. Rix has magic. She's in the line of succession for her grandmother. However, her magic is flawed. So she kills everything she touches. Plants, animals, people, everything. You love that for your main character. You know, it really allows them to connect. (laughs) (laughs) So, and I think that plays a little bit into her as a character because she's in some ways super immature, but, you know, she's never had physical comforts of any kind and she's murdered people. (laughs) (laughs) I think the only people that can touch her are like the really powerful people who can use magic in this world. And so there's not that many people in her life that she is safe around. So the story starts out with Rick's trying to facilitate peace talks between Alivar and the Serene Empire. So these are like surrounding areas and she's trying to avoid war. Yeah, because any war between the two of them is going to affect her grandmother's domain as well. So sits kind of in between. Yeah. So she's having envoys from all these areas sent to her castle to facilitate these peace talks. And the ambassador from Alivar, before the peace talks can even happen, tries to break into this secret obsidian tower, which is the mysterious tower that Rix's family has guarded for the past 4,000 years. They don't even really know much about it. All they have is just this family prophecy and these warning poems that are written all over the castle. Yeah, everywhere. Parts of it are written on the walls and it's just nothing must unseal the door. Nothing must unseal the door. And so in the process of this person trying to break in, Rix kills her and that sets off all of the political chaos for the story. So the Lady of Owls sends Rix to get the Rookery Which is an independent group who their job is to investigate any sort of magical mishaps or artifacts or whatever. They're kind of Switzerland in this world. They don't participate in politics for any of the different countries. Their job is really just to take care of this magical stuff. And when Rix gets back with the Rickery, Grandma's gone. She's just disappeared. Nobody's sure where she's at. So she starts to work with the rookery and this cool ancient fox cat chimera creature who has lived in the castle for ages. His name is Whisper. And they're trying to figure out the truth about what's hidden in the tower and what to do about it. And what they find out is that it is a gate to the nine hells. Surprise! So portals between dimensions, do I get half a point for getting that right? I don't know. I think that partially counts. (laughs) So then what happens is word of all these things is getting out, particularly the murder of the ambassador from Alabar, and word about this mysterious tower and it's been opened and there's some kind of artifact inside, right? And so these people are kind of descending on the castle in a lot of ways. And one in particular that is worth mentioning is a character named Severin, who is the brother of the Shrike Lord, who's the leader of Alabar. And Severin shows up and in this big display demands that the ambassador's killer be turned over to the Shrike Lord for justice or control of the tower. I mean, you know, it's equivalent, right? So Rix is trying to navigate the pressure and these threats that are coming from all these neighboring nations. Everyone's going crazy trying to figure out 
you know, do we destroy the gate? Who's going to control it? We can't let the Lady of Owls be in charge of it. It should be the Shrike Lord. No, it should be the Elk Lord. No, it should be the Serene It should be no mage. Just the knowledge that this gate exists is suddenly spinning all these people into a frenzy trying to figure it out, right? But for Ricks and the Rookery, their big thing is they just want to close it or destroy it or just stop it. Rick's own aunt is assassinated. And then the next night, Rick's is almost assassinated, but ends up being saved by none other than Severin. After that, Rick's learns that a demon has already come through the gate when the ambassador that she killed was messing with it, basically. And that demon, we find out, ended up merging with her grandmother. So the demon is not possessing the Lady of Owls. And the Lady of Owls is not controlling this demon and holding it inside of her. They have melded and become something new in and of themselves. So pressure in Gloamingard is reaching a boiling point. And Ricks and the Rookery decide that they cannot allow these nations to fall into war over control of this gate. So they say, we have to close it. We have to destroy it. Just Take this piece off the chessboard, basically. So they do. They try to do that, but they fail. Miserably. Yeah. And in failing, I believe a second demon is then released through the gate. Also, right after this, uh, Rix is discovered to be the killer of the ambassador. And one of Severin's entourage, who is just the biggest simp for the Shrike Lord you've ever seen, kidnaps her. And tries to get her very quickly secreted away to Alivar and to the Shrike Lord. She is taken there. She's basically like chained up in the Shrike Lord's hall. Yeah, by vines and like thorns and stuff. Yeah, and then the Shrike Lord is gonna kill her. But then Rix ends up releasing this terrible power that she has spent her entire life trying to hold in and control and keep out of the world because what her power does is kill things. And so she, in very Elsa fashion, just lets it go. <laughs> but it's not its not a musical. It's not whimsical. It's really sad for her. It's hard for her to do, but she releases it and it ends up allowing her to get away. And she also ends up getting a little help from Severin who catches up and helps her escape. While they're on their way back to Morgrain and Gloamingard, they run into the Rookery who has left Gloamingard in an attempt to come rescue her. And for her, that's a really big touching moment because she's never had anyone that cared so much about her and blah, 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 blah. So they all together turn back and start to head back to Gloamingard. But Rick's, in her new knowledge, says that the artifact within the tower is not the gate the artifact and the tower itself is the lock holding a rift between their world and the demon world closed so basically their thought process leading up to this was we can destroy the artifact destroy the tower and then this gateway will be gone they realize no if we destroy the artifact and the tower we will blow open the rift and there will be nothing to stop the rest of these demons from coming through so they very quickly realize that they have to reseal the tower, reseal the artifact inside, but they can't just 
seal it the way it's been sealed because the seals and the magic of Glomingard is all wrapped around the bloodline of this family. So Rick's, anyone in Rick's family can open the tower, can unseal the stone. So when that now includes Demon Grandma. Yeah, it definitely includes Demon Grandma. And up until this point, Demon Grandma hasn't necessarily cared for letting other demons into the world, but she is Chaos Demon Grandma. And so that card is not necessarily one that she wouldn't play. And so they can't bank on her being on their side, even though Demon Grandma has still showed her own form of affection towards Rick's. Yeah, that's, I think, a cool part about this whole merging yeah. of the demon and the grandma. Because grandma was already kind of cold. Yeah. She was never a super warm, affectionate grandma anyway. Mm-hmm. But she still had love and protection or whatever for Rick's. And that still exists. She just also has these motivations and drivers of a chaos demon. <laughs> yeah. So they rush back to the tower. And when they get back, we have this final showdown within the tower between the Rookery and Rick's. They have a showdown with the Lady of Owls and another of the demons who has possessed someone else. And so they're all having this fight. Rick's is mostly attempting to distract her grandmother while the people of the Rickery work on redoing the spells to exclude Demon Grandma from the list of people who can open the tower. And they are successful. They're able to keep Demon Grandma out. Other demon runs away. But they have no way of separating demon from grandma. They cannot kill her because she is a powerful witch lord as well. So they have to flee. So Rix, Severin, and the Rookery all flee to Rivera, where I believe the Rookery has a base. And at the end of the book, Rix is invited to join the Rookery, and she has friends for the first time in her life. Severin also agrees not to join the Rookery. He can't, but he can go along with them and be like a third wheel. Yeah, he can help out. And we're left with a very open, this is what's going to happen in future books. Right. This is definitely the foundation for probably a bunch of other hijinks in the series. Yeah. So that's the main synopsis. So the first thing I want to talk about is just the magic system. Okay. In, at least in the area of the world that... Rix is from, it's also part of like the social hierarchy. Big time, yeah. There are people who have no magic. There are people who have a little magic. Mm -hmm. And then there are the mage marked, which we don't get a ton of information on, but it sounds like it's something that develops shortly after birth. Yes, it shows as a mark on the iris. But it's not right away. No, because Rix is mage marked. Mm Mm-hmm. And her whole flawed magic, all of that, it happened as her magic was... She got sick, almost died, Mm -hmm. which I really think... At the time of her magic manifesting. Right. And they think that like something to do with her being sick or whatever that they did keeping her alive had something to do with her magic being flawed. I have a theory. I also have a theory. And... I was waiting through the whole book for like a reveal that never happened. So I'm hoping it happens in future books. I want to hear yours first. My theory is that she is melded with the demon of death. That is my theory as well. Okay. I don't feel so so special anymore. (laughs) I was waiting for the whole... There is a reveal at the end of the book, but 
that's what I was thought it was going to be. And I it almost got to the point, you know, when you're guessing something that's going to happen, you're like, all right, I've got enough hints. You can tell me now. Yeah. And then they just never did. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of it for me had to deal with the way that Whisper watches her, uh-huh. helps her, but doesn't. And, you know. Well, and then when Grandma becomes Demon Grandma, there are just some comments that she makes about like, well, she's, I want you to let your nature out and stuff like that. So I feel like it's hinting. And then every time she starts to talk too much, Whisper shuts her down. So I really think that- I'm wondering if, because Whisper is super old. They don't remember who made him. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's something very quickly. Chimeras are made in this world. So powerful mages can combine different kinds of animals together. In the book, they talk about battle chimeras, which I believe have lion and- Maybe I think it can be pretty much anything. Yeah, but very big, powerful, fighty animals. But then you also have other kinds of chimeras. Her cousin has one that's part weasel, part something else, but he can ride it. So it must be huge. Yeah. And Whisper is described as something between a cat and a fox. He's all black. He can disappear into shadows. Yeah. He's rad as hell. Whisper actually reminds me of a character from another series. It's a little bit older series called Aborson. I don't know if I'm saying it right. But that series involves another female protagonist in a world where magic exists. But she comes across this character called Mogget. And I think he's just a cat. But he's like a magical cat who can talk to her. He's ancient and has this mysterious background where in that book, the people who create these creatures are like binding their spirits. So it's unclear like who bound him or what he really was. And then it comes out he is actually a pure magic entity that's existed since the beginning of time kind of thing. But he functions in very much the same way as Whisper does, where he's this odd cat-like creature who sort of comes in and drops little snippets of oh, little nuggets of knowledge. Yeah, but he's super cryptic. He doesn't want to tell you where he came from. And then at the end that you find out he's kind of like this all-powerful, used to be evil, and now I'm not evil and not good, but <laughs> I've had my wild days and I'm yeah. chill now. <laughs> so I just wonder if Mogget was a little bit of the inspiration for Whisper, because mm. it's very very similar concepts and even the way the character speaks and looks and whatever. So back to Rix and her flawed magic. So she got sick around the time that her power was manifesting. They had to do all this stuff to keep her alive. And then after that point, so she was, I think, two or three when that happened. And around four is when they see that her magic is flawed in the sense that she accidentally kills a man. Basically, when she touches things, what her magic does, rather than being the life magic that a lot of the mages in her region- Vivamancy. Vivamancy, there you go. So they can make plants grow more. Some have more of an affinity towards animals and things like that. But her magic is kind of the reversal of that. So rather than pushing more life into the things around her, she sucks the life force, sucks the energy out of things. One thing that's kind of cool about and a little bit different than other fantasy novels, the witch lords, I think you will probably learn more about them in the future books, but it's whoever the witch lord is, like the supreme person for that area, they're immortal, Mm -hmm. essentially. Yeah, because they're connected to all the life in their domain. Yeah. So that one particular person, whoever has kind of risen to power, and I don't really even know how that happens, how you transfer the power from one to another. So there is a very brief 
just a little aside in the book where they kind of talk about it. And I imagine it's something that will be more prevalent in other books. But Rix is speaking with someone about the possibility of taking the domain away from their grandmother, which is basically impossible to do because of how well connected. It is said that a witch lord can tune into a blade of grass from across their entire domain and know that it has they're, died. They're connected to all life in the domain. Yeah. That they Yeah, so the grandmother knows when anyone in her family, anyone in her domain, any animal in her domain has been hurt or, you know, anything. She might need to seek it out kind of through her little weird network or whatever, but she could find anyone within her domain that she is connected to. She can feel it. And then she can also control all of it. So she can make plants grow and grab you from from across the domain. Yeah. So, but there is a mention where Rix says something along the lines of, I think either her uncle or her father, who are both direct descendants of the grandmother, could go around and blood the stones is specific what she says. So I imagine that there is something in the domain where like maybe if a new person comes and does their blood to it, they can steal the domain. But because a witch lord is so connected to and in tune with their domain, they could stop you from doing that. I remember that specifically, blood the stones. And I was like, ooh, what does that mean? Tell me more. I didn't catch that, but that makes sort of sense because I was always wondering if it's just like a, you know, one dies and then it just happens or... Yeah, I would imagine that a peaceful transference of power doesn't happen often. But if it does happen, probably involves the consent of the current witch lord. Well, and that's so a lot of the political conflict that we're to understand has happened in history in this area is all about the witch lords trying to find new land for their family to become like a new witch lord so that they are also immortal. So they're trying to constantly kind of steal little bits of land from other places so that they can make sure that their families don't die. Yeah. And so the whole peace talks between Alavar and the Serene Empire are happening because Alavar tried to take over this island and make that the domain of the Shrike Lord's girlfriend. And the Serene Empire was like, nah, dog, that's our land. And so something interesting about magic between where the Witch Lords live and the Serene Empire is in the Serene Empire, mages are not all powerful. They are not the ruling class They are, in a lot of ways, looked on way more suspiciously, and the Serene Empire has come up with a way to control them, which is by creating these things called Jesses. Now, I didn't know this until I looked it up, because there's a lot of falconry terminology used around the Jess. A Jess is a device used to basically shackle falcons. The premise of a Jess in this magic system is that the mage wears a bracelet that tethers their power and holds it in, basically turns it in on itself. Doesn't do any damage or anything like that, but it's just held within the being. And the mage then has a falconer who is magically connected to them through this jest. And the falconer is the one who can lock down or release the mage's ability to use their power. So it's a very different dynamic and approach to magic between these different nations. And that is also a huge point of contention because Rix gets a Jess. You would think, being that she's an accidental murderer, (laughs) and that literally the entire layout of the castle that she lives in is 
set up to try to help avoid her killing people. There are certain parts she can't even go because she would kill like the structure (laughs) of the castle. But they also have lines on the wall that show people walk on this side because she's going to be over there. Yeah, it's vines with purple flowers, I think, that the grandmother grew on specific sides of every hallway. So you would think that with someone who's as much of a danger as her, and given that she has lived for this long with this amount of power, she has a lot of accidents. Yeah. Surprisingly to me. Like, she still almost runs into people. There's a lot of descriptions of her flailing herself and trying to throw herself away from other people, but she always falls and makes it worse. To her credit, a lot of that is happening around people who do not typically live within the castle. Everyone that lives within the castle is, for the most part, very wary of her, and they all know to stop from getting too close to her. Whereas, towards the beginning of the book, when she first accidentally meets one of the members of the rookery, that person, Kessa, doesn't know about walking on the correct side of the hallway. And so that big old accident of them, I think Rick's bumps into the tray that she's holding. Yeah, all of those accidents do happen around people who don't live in Gloaming Guard. And can we just take a second to talk about how freaking cool Gloaming Guard is? <laughs> the very first note that I made to myself was that Gloaming Guard is so cool. And it makes me think of the Winchester Man in California. Gloaming Guard was built around the Obsidian Tower. So there's the obelisk that is the rift, basically, or it's the seal on the rift, and then the tower is built around that. And then the generations and generations of Morgrain witch lords that came after each built onto the castle. So you have the old castle, which is all stone, and then you have the Mantis Lord who did the bone parts of the castle. And so you have these bone archways, and it's really, I would imagine it being very gothic, but with bones. (laughs) And not like, oh, it's just white, and I don't know that that material is bone. It is the shapes of the bones. Yeah, and it's designed in ways that the wind can blow through the bones and make bone chimes that will rattle as the wind blows. And then you have other parts of the castle that are living trees. There's a whole hall that is created by these giant trees. When we talk about the parts of the castle where Ricks can't go, it's those parts where the castle itself is literally alive. I thought that was really cool, and I want to explore this castle because it's got hidden passageways. It talks a lot about how because it's been built on top of itself over generation, 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 there's these forgotten hallways and these closed-off staircases that don't go anywhere, and I just love everything about that. I really liked that aspect of the setting. So back to the Jess... You would think that knowing how problematic Rix is, that she would have had one as a kid, you know? Yeah. But it comes back to the politics. Politics is actually a really big part of this story, and Mm -hmm. it's because she is actually half Vescandron and half Reveran. So her mom is actually from Rivera, and the Vescandron side with all the mage lords and everything, they would never give their power to a Reveran. And I guess the falconing, that only happens in Rivera. Yeah, I think that they're only made by the Serene Empire in Rivera. 
So they've never given her one because that would be giving her power away. I still think it's ridiculous because her power is detrimental <laughs> to but, everyone. Yeah, so the Viscander mindset is that your power is your status. So they use terminology, for example, anyone that is a descendant of a witch lord is called an atheling, which is an Anglo-Saxon term, another real world term that I didn't know about. So anyone who is related to these powerful mages is an atheling. But if you are a mage, then you have a bit more status. But again, like we said earlier, not all mages are mage marked. And so if you are mage marked, then you are an exalted athling. And it is a huge privilege and power status symbol thing to the point where Alavar, which is presented as a very cruel, very warlike witch lord domain over there, it seems very common that if you are mage marked, you can slap the crap out of anybody and no one's going to do anything about it because that's your status, that's your right, and how dare anyone speak ill to you or anything like that. And we see that in the story, someone from Alavar just smacks the crap out of some kid and she comes running up and almost grabs the guy but stops herself very quickly and tells him off. Well, and it was all about the kid like didn't pay the proper respect to somebody who's mage marked. So to give that up and to give that power away, not just to give it up, but to allow some lesser being to control it for you was so taboo that even her power, which has been nothing but bad through her whole life, the idea of her getting one of these Jesses is just absolutely off the table. But she does it anyway. Yeah, I mean, at the point when she does it, there's no one around to tell her not to because her grandma's MIA and she's not going to let her aunt tell her what to do. So Well, and then she's almost killed Kessa. Is that the sort of instigation where she decides to do it? It's that. And I think it's her desire to work more closely with the rookery. I think it's the guilt of having killed the ambassador from Alivar, who, by the way, we didn't mention it earlier, but the ambassador that shows up from Alivar is the Shrike Lord's girlfriend. And she's just pure evil. She's just bad. Her whole motivation is just, there's something there. It seems powerful and I want it. Yeah. Well, and I think probably in future books, it's going to come out that maybe they knew more about the tower than they mm. ever let on because she came with the purpose of exploring the tower. Yeah. And Rick's barely knows about it. That's a huge point that no one knows what's in the tower. But then we find out that the grandma definitely knew. Yeah, and I think that's part of the, because they say she went in when Rix was sick, right? Like, yes. that's when she went into the tower. Yeah, that's, again, why I'm like, oh, she's totally got a demon in her. Mm -hmm. There was a point kind of early in the book before Grandma's Demon Grandma, and she's talking to Rix about her power, and it's like a heart-to-heart -heart about just her life in general. Yeah. And she says something about you can't be close to people, and I feel like in that point in the book, Rix believes, and you're supposed to believe that that's all about being in physical proximity to people, but I think it's going to come out that Grandma wanted to keep her like socially isolated as well, probably huh. for reasons of I don't know what you're going to do because you're part demon. Interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. I tied it into just the physical proximity, but also the emotional connection because you would struggle so hard to have a strong emotional connection to somebody and not be physically close to them. So that's a huge thing for Rick's through the whole story. She just kind of falls in love with everybody that she Yeah, meets. yeah. Okay, do we want to switch to talk about that part? 
We can. I love it because this is where I think it's very obvious that this book is kind of a young adult novel. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's 21, but it is still very coming of age. I kind of get it in that she has never been able to have these emotional connections. And she had to go through all of her teenage years, all those hormones, all that terrible growing up bit with having to keep herself like literally jumping away from people. Yeah. And so I kind of understand this emotional immaturity of I just want something. She crushes on Kessa the first time she runs into her. Immediately. Yeah. And that reminds her of another person from her past that we get a little about. It was another noble-blooded person from a neighboring witch lord's domain. Yeah. And And I think that was when, like, as soon as she let grandma know. Yeah, they sent her away. Yeah, she told her grandmother, I think I would like to court her. Yeah, and that may have been where the conversation happened. I think it is. About the, you can't be close to people. So then she also seemed like maybe she has a thing for Aurelio. Mm-hmm. Who we have not named yet. He is like a... He's a military advisor to the ambassador from the Serena Empire right. specifically that is coming to this. And he is somebody that she knows from her younger days and they were the closest thing that she would have called a friend. Mm-hmm. So she has this moment of like, does he even remember me? Because he was a big influential person to her just because of the fact that he wasn't terrified of her. Yes. And they kind of connect and she actually confides in him a little bit. And that turns out to be a poor choice. Yeah. So he is not a mage. He is, in fact, working towards being a falconer. And he has come along with these ambassadors from the Serene Empire. And she does. She has this little reconnect with him. And in the audiobook, everyone from the Serene Empire has this very posh, like British kind of accent. And I enjoy that. So when she starts talking to him and he's like, yes, I remember you. I, you know, I remember you fondly and I, I admire you and all this stuff. And she's like, oh, swoon again, immediately after swooning over Kessa. But I have to admit that I was like, oh, okay, all right, Aurelio, let's go. I like your name. That's fun. You know, maybe this is the ill advice because she's going to get entwined with one side of this whole, you know, peace talks group and be seen as prejudiced or whatever. But in the aftermath of the door opening, he is brought in as a, hey, want to try out this jest so that we can all work together and you don't kill anybody. And she jumps at the opportunity. So he's the original person that holds her power. Mm -hmm. And he mentions that usually in the Serene Empire, a falconer will not lock down the power of a mage. It's only used in case of emergency. So the mage always has their power and they can do whatever. And then it's kind of one of those, if they get out of line, the falconer can lock it off and stop them. Because of the nature of Rix's power, it goes the other way. So it's turned off and suddenly she can touch people and she can <laughs> dance with people. And who does she dance with and also form a crush for? Severin. Severin, the brother of the Shrike Lord, who I cannot help but picture. And I know we talked about this last time about how you don't really picture characters, but I totally picture him as the headmaster of the other hog oh um the ones that show up in the boat and in the movie it's the all boys school and Durmstrang. 
Durham Strang. So the head guy from that, that's what I originally envisioned him as. And so it was really hard for me to reconcile Rick's crushing on this dude. <laughs> and it's mostly because in the audiobook, everyone from Alivar has, it's a French kind of accent, but it's a very Russian French is the best what? way that I could put it. It's very <laughs> rough. So the Shrikelord's girlfriend, for example, has a very like, oh, French, you know, whatever. But Severin and the other guy who is the Shrikelord's number one dude, Voreth, have way gruffer, deeper, growlier, but it's still French. So I don't know how else to put it other than it's a very Russian French. I can't picture it. I mean, I'm sure there are people out there who have Russian no, French there, accents. No, there's no way. They're, they're not... Well, There's if so you many start out speaking Russian well, and you learn French or <laughs> vice versa, you're going to have an intermingled accent. Anyway. So she crushes on Severin. And I think that Severin is the ultimate love interest oh, yeah. of the series. I mean, he's the one that saves her from assassination. He comes after her when Voreth steals her away to take her back to the Shrike Lord. At the Shrike Lord's domain, he does stand up to his brother a little bit. And I was extremely disappointed in that scene, by the way, because I, the Shrike Lord is built up to be this like big bad, like yeah. he is a abuser. Severin's all scarred and everything. It's mm -hmm. like he's going to murder people willy nilly. And then Severin finally stands up to him. They're having this showdown, and he's like, "Get out of town." <laughs> You know, it's like the wussiest response. Severin, he appeals to him being like, if you do this, then you're nothing better than their father, I think was. I don't even remember, but it's just. It had something to do with Severin and the Shrike Lord's dad was this very overbearing, very abusive father. And within the witch kingdoms or the witch lord kingdoms, succession is really important. And it is really important that all of the other witch lords understand who your successor is going to be and that you are not creating so many offspring and descendants that you become a threat to maybe taking over their places. And I believe that Severin is twins mm -hmm. with the Shrike Lord. And so there was all this hubbub about which one of them was going to inherit. And so Severin had to continually show how subservient he was to his brother. And there is a little bit in there about how they make that agreement as brothers so that Severin isn't killed mm -hmm. or so that, oh, that's right, because it was one of you has to kill the other. Their dad made them do that. One of you has to kill the other. And they stood up to their dad together by being like, we're not going to do that. Shrike Lord going to be the Shrike Lord and Severin is going They to killed their dad. That's what they did. That's right. They came together and decided instead of killing each other, we're going to kill him, but you're going to be the, the new Lord yeah. and I'm going to be always hands off. Yeah. So I remember this what weird like pseudo love between the brothers, but it is definitely a thing where like the Shrike Lord kind of got high on himself too. In the little confrontation, Severin's telling him, basically, you don't get to pretend to be a good guy if you do this. Yeah. And that was enough for him to be like, okay, yeah. never come back here again. <laughs> I was kind of under the impression that we weren't going to see the Shrike Lord until maybe the next book or, you know, that 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 kind of, it definitely was building up as like something is coming. Yeah. With I that. also have to say that I might have read too much into him being this big bad because 
Well, I didn't know Shrike was a bird. <laughs> I did have to look that up too. So the only time I've heard Shrike is in the book Hyperion. Yes. And if you've not read Hyperion, the Shrike is this terrifying, shape-shifting, murderous- Very sharp. Yeah, creature with powers that can get in your head. And it's one of like the scariest book monsters I think I've ever read about. And so that's what I was thinking about every time they talked about the Shrike Lord. <laughs> yeah. Well, so apparently Shrikes are also called butcher birds. Ooh. And I looked this up because I was like, what is a Shrike? I know it's an animal, but I can't remember what it is. And the weird thing about Shrikes is that they will catch small little critters and then hang them. And so if you Google Shrike or Butcher Bird, you'll see these pictures of a field mouse or even like a small rabbit or something like hung up in a tree, almost like how a butcher would like hang up Mm -hmm. an animal to then cut it up and process it. That's how like they catch their food and then that's how they eat them. And so when I saw that, I go, okay, (laughs) you know, I do think it's obvious that these witch lords are named after animals that they seem to have some kind of affinity with. So we hear about the fox lord, we hear about the elk lord. It seems like a high percentage are bird related. If you were going to be a witch lord, what animal would you have? Okay. What what would you be the lady of? That's the other thing is that you have like Shrike Lord, Fox Lord, Elk Lord, but if it is a female, they're the lady of owls. Yeah. Because otherwise you're called the owl lady and that just completely paints a different picture in my brain. (laughs) Okay. So is it what I would most want to be or what I think fits me best? Yes. Those are two different things. (laughs) What fits you best? I mean, I would probably be the lady of cats like that's so boring but that would be the reality (laughs) okay so like house cats yeah yeah i mean i want to be more exciting but well see it's funny because i think that i didn't have it in my head until you said what i want or what would fit me and i was like man what would fit me dogs (laughs) (laughs) so i I would be the lady of hounds okay that's still more exciting So we do have, for the first time, some commentary from fellow readers. Mm -hmm. Uh, So friend of the podcast, we will come up with a better nickname for all of you wonderful listeners. But friend of the podcast, Mary, wrote us an email with just the best subject line. This book gave me blue balls. (laughs) <laughs> and I get that. But it could be it like the subject line applies to so many parts of it because yeah. one, you know, we already talked about we think that there's a reveal about Rick's and her power mm-hmm. and that didn't happen. She has all of these crushes and really nothing ever happens with any of them. Well, so we didn't get into why Aurelio being one of her crushes was a bad idea. It just turns out he is secretly working for this shadow organization within the Serene Empire that is bad. And his whole agenda is to try to get more information about the tower, not let it be sealed off, destroyed, closed, whatever, because their organization wants to get control of it. And it is all about, my understanding of it is very much around these people that think that mages have too much power and so other people should get their hands on any kind of artifacts 
or anything like just that. Just to, to even help. the playing field. Yeah. And he's the one that ends up getting possessed by the second demon. Well, he's also the murderer. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So he's the one that killed her aunt. He's the one that almost kills her. Mm-hmm. And the whole time he's like, I'm doing this for you. Can't you just see? And blah, blah. He's giving these monologues that are just so... They made me so mad, mostly because I was kind of Team Aurelio at the very beginning. I see a redemption arc for Aurelio in the future Mm. because, yes, he's doing all these bad things. He's making poor choices. He's hurting people that he claims that he cares about. But he's doing this because he's in a place where if he doesn't, he and his father will probably be killed. Yeah, and there is a parallel, I feel like, between Severin and Aurelio in the sense that they both are like, I want to help you, but I can't. Mm -hmm. And I kind of get it, but at the same time, I'm very frustrated by these no-gumption boys in her life. And then, like, the flip side of that, you see these very strong female characters, Kessa, Ash, who Mary points out is very one note. And I do think that that is valid. Ash is very much, I'm going to stab it to the point where the rookery has to have the, they're like, rule 36, no stabbing when talking can suffice or, you know, whatever. But they're very independent. They're very proactive female well, characters. And I, I, I like that. Let's talk. This is probably my least favorite thing about this book. Mm. The way that sexuality is approached. Okay. So, because you talked about like the boys being not strong boys or whatever. There are, to me, some ham fisted attempts at shoehorning various sexualities into the story. And it just, it felt like too much. So you have Rix is attracted to any and all. So she's sort of a like a pansexual kind of person. Mm-hmm. You have uh, Aunt Kerrigan, who's the aunt who's murdered. They just throw out at one point that she has multiple husbands. There is Ardith, who is a character who is non-binary. Mm-hmm. And when Ardith is introduced, it's like, they're here. And I had to go a couple paragraphs to understand that that was not like there is a faction of people here called the Ardith. Oh, yeah, that was a little bit confusing at first. And then Kessa is painted as being asexual. Yeah, she's romantic but asexual. Mm-hmm. And I just, it felt like super obvious that that was purposeful. There's a lot of ways that you can paint stories with people of different backgrounds without having to be like, this person is this. And it felt too much to me. I can kind of see that. I do wonder if this book lives in a awkward stage of just like where we are at in as a society mm-hmm. of we recognize the importance of representation and we want that to be more of the norm. Yeah. It but just we felt can't forced. we can't get there. Well that's what I'm saying. So like we can't get there until it's happened more, if that makes okay. sense. So yeah. I think that because we have grown up in a society where it is not commonplace to be portrayed in media because of just everyone's hangups about things as society is kind of like okay we can do this we're trying to figure out how to do it and in trying to figure out how to do it it can appear and sometimes is forced just because the balance between people not being used to it and then people not being used to how to do it. I think yeah, might be. and maybe that's what it, because there's parts of the structure of the way society is built that still feels very like binary gender traditional yeah. norms. And then you throw in these people that I'm like, I, does that fit? Does that fit into these super 
family line stories. Yeah. It doesn't seem like those two societies happen at the same time. Yeah. And I mean, again, that might be an aspect of just that's not how it happened for our world society. So it seems very out of place. I don't know. I do think my biggest hang up with like the sexuality or the romance of the story was, and this is something that friend of the podcast, Mary, also mentioned is, does it make sense for her to have all these crushes all at the same time during the most traumatic part of her life? I mean, I get it, girl. You must be horny as hell, but like, <laughs> come on, can you focus, please? So that was where I was the most hung up on it of just like, you literally almost got murdered and you're thinking about how pretty Severin's cheekbones are. <laughs> like, come or on. Or his neck, the way the light hit his neck. I thought that was a really odd. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then also I think written for a younger audience too. And it's a little bit more simplistic. Mm -hmm. And so I think that maybe the combination of that simplicity and then trying to throw Be all this stuff in yeah. kind of makes it feel a little bit more ham-fisted. All the way that the romance and stuff is handled, I do feel is very immature mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. I bookmarked in the audiobook a scene between Rix and Severin where he says something along the lines of like, show me how to be a better man or something <laughs> like that. Like she, like she goes to touch his cheek and like pulls her hand away because, you know, she has this reaction where she has almost like an impulse to not touch. And he grabs her hand and puts it there. And she's like, I don't know if you know how to be a good man. He's like, show me. <laughs> I'm just like, oh my God. <laughs> anyway. But yeah, so with the end of the book, we definitely have a lot of lack of resolution, as friend of the podcast Mary points out, and thus the reason for the, the subject line of her email. Uh, Mary, thank you for reading along with us. Thank you for sending in your thoughts. We really like to have a few other talking points. She also mentions that she really loves Demon Grandma. And I have to admit, the way that that character changes is like this weird, there's like a sliminess to it that I really liked. So this is the first book that we've done that's actually part of a series. Mm -hmm. And a bit that we discuss doing anytime something like this comes up is wild speculation on what we think happens in the rest of the series. So this happens to be the first book in this series. Yeah, we got lucky in yeah. that sense. But let's take some guesses at what we think is going to happen. We've already talked a little bit about Rick's being revealing that she's a demon. I'm imagining that our next book is going to take us more into the Serene Empire I don't know about specifics, but I do think we're going to get a look at more of the harder magic mm -hmm. uh, within the system. This is something that Brandon Sanderson, when he does a fiction writing lecture, talks about when you're writing a novel about really establishing what kinds of magic that your novel would have. And he talks about soft magic and hard magic. And the best way to explain that would be within this series, soft magic is what the witch lords have. It's this life magic. It's kind of amorphous. The rules aren't super hard explained. It's just kind of, it's the force. It's, you know, that kind of stuff. Within this book series, the hard magic would be more like the artificery, the jess. It has specific ingredients, so like potions, spells, etchings, runes of power, you know, things like that that have very specific rules about how they work and how they can be broken. That's the more hard magic angle. And so I think that with this fleeing into Rivera and now working more closely and more officially with the rookery, I think we're going to see a little bit more of that. 
And I think we are going to see a bit more of a showdown between the Rookery and Ricks and everybody against this shadow organization that has been building power within Rivera. Yeah, that to me seems like probably in the next book Mm -hmm. that's going to come up. For the series as a whole, again, I don't know how far out it's going to go, but my guess is that at some point there's an emphasis on Rick's teaching Demon Grandma how to be good again. Mm. You know what I mean? Like how once Rick realizes what she is, yeah, she then works with Grandma to teach her how to exist in this world in a positive way and how to care. Yeah about more than just things that immediately impact her. I also think, so they talk about the gate is to the nine hells, and then there's lots of history about what are the nine hells, what are these demons, but it's from very long ago. It's very, like, if we were talking about things that happened in the Bible, it's longer than that. Yeah. So it's mythology for them, and it's this kind of realization that the mythology is real. In a way. But I think they're going to learn more about what the hells are, Mm -hmm. and I think it's going to be a lot less good and evil than it seems like. Well, yeah, so that's one of the things that Whisper does eventually reveal to Ricks is that the hells is a plane of pure energy. Mm -hmm. And there are these beings of energy. And what I find really interesting is the parallel to kind of like Christian concepts of virtues and sin, right? Because you have these nine demons. The two that we've met are, is it greed or is it hunger? Hunger. Is hunger. Okay, so we have hunger and chaos are the two that we have officially met. We know that death is one. We know that carnage is one. But then the Reverends and the Serene Empire, their religious beliefs have the graces and their, you know, all these virtues. And so I'm wondering if maybe we'll see some morphing of these demons into graces. In the Reverend mythology, the graces defeat the demons. And the graces may or may not have been actual people that were then elevated because of like their virtue or whatever. So what if the graces are the people melded with the demons? So a grace is when a demon finds the person that they fit with to become whatever this new thing is. And that is sort of the savior of the demon because they get humanity, you know, incorporated and then they become better. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe. I know that there was mention of like how demons can come into a person as either like they either fully possess the person, they meld with the person, or the person dominates the demon. Mm -hmm. And you don't know until the being and the demon come into contact. Like Kessa was possessed. Right. Aurelio allowed the demon in and had like a deal with the demon. But I don't like they're not perfectly melded. No. So there's definitely these different layers of how they can interact. And the chaos demon even mentioned, well, chaos demon grandma mentions that the first time they came through. So way back at the beginning of, you know, recorded history, basically for people, the beginning of this mythology is these demons came through and just wrecked the world. And chaos demon grandma mentions we didn't know what we were doing that time. We were beings of pure energy in a material world, didn't know how to interact with it. So in a lot of ways, we were just flailing around. We were children learning how to walk, which when she's describing it then is really kind of terrifying because it's like, 
that's what you did when you didn't know what you were doing. Yeah. What could you do if you came here with a plan? Which is, that's what we're seeing yeah. the very beginning. But it's, it is really interesting because we see that these demons have no obligation to work together. Mm-hmm. Like the chaos demon's like, I'm just going to do whatever I think seems most entertaining at the moment. Well, I mean, it's the hierarchy of morality development, mm. right? They're mm-hmm. still at that whatever I want, that's what's moral yeah. stage of life. <laughs> which which we're seeing a lot with a lot of the witch lords too, right? Might is right in a lot of ways. So. so did you have a favorite quote? I didn't have a favorite quote. I had a favorite moment. It happened when Rix was being taken away to Alivar by the ambassador buddy guy. And at one point, Demon Grandma shows up, puts everybody else to sleep, and she's described as just kind of appearing above the wagon, like out of the trees and like slinking down and dropping down like this. Again, she gives off this like slimy, but in like the best kind of way. I I don't know how else to describe it, but it is just this sinuous kind of evil, but it's okay because I love you kind of thing. And she shows up and she's like, I'm here to rescue you. Come with me. Come let out your true nature. Let's go be chaos together. La 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 la. And Rix is like, no, I'm not going to do that. And then Demon Grandma goes super brutal. And she's like, then I want you to suffer. I want you to get to the point where you will break and then use your power. And then you will realize how great you are and all this stuff. And then she puts Rix to sleep and leaves. And then Rix ends up still being taken away to this other kingdom or whatever. But the way the grandma is described as just kind of crawling, almost like a spider or something. It's that perfect example of how incredibly dangerous Mm -hmm. she is. But at the same time, you know that she's not going to do anything, but oh boy, could she. And I loved that. There weren't any particular lines that really, really stuck out, but there were some points that I found the writing to be kind of poetic, and I just thought it was like creative ways of stringing the words together. So one of them is, I think she's describing all of the animals in the kingdom and whatever, like the plants and animals all intertwined, and she calls it all the furious innocence of living things. Hmm. And I just thought that was like a really interesting way to say that. I liked this idea of furious innocence. Yeah, that kind of nature is innocent because it is pure. It is just what it is. And there's no morality put into it. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other one I liked, this is when they were talking about uh, everybody is milling around, I think, before this trial. There's a trial at one point. Mm. And they're talking about people standing in little groups and discussing what's going to happen and just sort of like the energy building in that space. And she says, rumor and truth twined together around them like strands of smoke hiding and spreading like wildfire. And I Hmm. thought that was a cool way to describe that building anticipation in a crowd when you know things are about to just explode. Yeah. Well, and the political intrigue, everyone has their agenda. They're fanning the flame or trying to snuff it. Yeah. So I liked both of those just for like the imagery 
that yeah. went with the words. Yeah, I do. It's it's really interesting because there was a lot of really good imagery, but then you couple it with some aspects like the romance and all that that felt kind of underdeveloped and just kind of shoehorned in, you know, because it's like, I'm writing this for young adults. I need some romance plots, you know. And So it's almost like the prose of the book or like the internal dialogue was pretty well developed and more mature, whereas the between characters dialogue was mm-hmm. not. That was where the immaturity came in. Okay. Yeah. And maybe that was on purpose. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it, there is a lot of commentary from Rex herself about how, like, I don't know how to interact with people because I've never had to. You know, my interactions have all been about how to keep people safe from me rather than how do I get closer to people. So I can kind of see that. I definitely thought that the book did a really good job of creating a vivid world. And I want to explore this world more. We didn't talk too much about the Rookery characters, but I love that little, you've got your fighter, you've got your kind of mommy character, you've got the leader of the group, and then you have Bastion who... He's the scribe, like yeah, the he's the scholar. scribe. He's the scholar. He is himself a chimera, which is revealed and is actually pretty clutch later on in the story when he can kind of blend in the wall and stuff. He's like a chameleon chimera, which I mean, he was abused into becoming one, and that's not great. And yeah, there's a the, little bit of the that magic's not supposed to be able to be used on people. Yeah, and so his the fact that he has been turned into a chimera is like super yeah his, not okay. His mentor took advantage of his trust and. And then experimented on him and stuff. And maybe we'll learn more about him and the other Rookery characters in the next books, too. So out of nine hells. Oh, our arbitrary judgment. How many hells would I give this out of nine hells? Well, because it's an incomplete story, I feel like I'm not as satisfied with it, right? So I think I would give this a six or a seven. Out of Nine Hills, I very much enjoyed it because this is the kind of story that I love. And I can forgive some of the less well-rounded aspects of it because I just love diving into a new world. So I think maybe more like a seven. Yeah, I was going to say seven as well. It fits with, you know, other YA style books. And I don't mind those as long as I can intermingle them with books that aren't so youth focused. Mm -hmm. But I agree. Will you voluntarily read further? I probably will give the next book a try. Yep. And see where it goes from there. I have to say I could walk away from this right now if I wanted to, but yeah, I I would give the I would give the second book a, a try. Yeah. I'm going to add it to my to be read list and I think it'll just be one of those where it's like, okay, now I'm ready to yeah, touch that one. Yeah. Again. I I mean, I have to say I while reading the book or while listening to it, I definitely wanted to keep going, mm-hmm. right? But As of right now, I mean, like I said, I want to know more, but I'll be okay if I don't. Okay, well, uh, so those were our thoughts and also a few of the thoughts from friend of the podcast, Mary. If you have some thoughts on this book that maybe we didn't touch on, maybe something you disagree with, we would love to hear your feedback. You can send us an email to librarygamepodcast at gmail.com. You can also hit us up on Instagram or Twitter at the library game. So for our next episode, we will be reading The Appetites of Girls by Pamela Moses. And we arrived at that book via the following RSSB coordinates. 11, 2, 4, 1. So again, that led us to The Appetites of Girls by Pamela Moses. But maybe that'll lead you somewhere else. And we would love to know where you end up. Next time on the library game. Adios.